So this morning we are stepping into the next psalm in our series. You know, we've been walking through the book of Psalms, and at some point soon we're going to take a pause in the book of Psalms and we're going to move to the Gospel of Luke and begin to walk through part of that story as well. But this morning, Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 has this feel of timelessness to it. Like it just feels like it, it has been around forever. It and, and it also, not just that it's like some ancient text that's been around forever, it seems like it might have been written this week. It has this, 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 this what, a, what just seems to be in conflict of both timelessness and yet deep relevance. It's very contemporary. I'm very excited to really step in and dig on this psalm. And this morning we're going to have a lot of Bible. So if you don't like the Bible, this isn't going to be your place. But if you do... It's going to use right up your alley this morning. Psalm 10, if you have the Bible with you, uh, you might have it on your phone. Uh, maybe you have it there in front of you at the pew. If you want to read along, come just follow along with me. We're in Psalm 10. I'm using the New International Version. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and then we're going to begin to unpack this psalm. And man, it's going to have something to say to me and to you right here where we live today. Verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. His laws are rejected. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From, from ambush he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift your hand, O God, do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? Thirteen verses, I think, have a sense of timelessness and yet deep relevance. Two things going on in these 13 verses. So we're just going to, I don't even want to think of these as points. I just, I, these are two things that are standing out, two, two themes maybe. Uh, that are running through these first 13 verses. So we're going to put them up, these two things, and then we're going to just quickly unpack each of them. So, number one, the psalmist is struggling because the wicked are prospering. Okay, so that's the first thing I'm noticing right out of the gate. And secondly, the wicked reject God, but man, there's a lot to that rejection. So we're going to, let's unpack both of these things. You'll notice that this is the psalmist. We don't know who wrote the psalm. Just like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, there's no subheading. So there's no long tradition of who wrote this psalm. So it kind of goes in the bucket of an anonymous psalm. But we know it is inspired. It's been in, it's been in the Old Testament uh, ever since it was written. And so here we have Psalm 10, the psalmist, right out of the gate, struggling. The wicked are prospering. 
Here's how he started the psalm, just as a review. The psalmist cries out, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the scheme he devises. I mean, this is this cry of, where are you? Like, I'm looking around, there are really bad things happening, where are you, God? Now, does that not feel contemporary? Like, hey, God, where are you? You seem far off, love to know what you're doing, because there's a lot of bad things happening right now. Where are you? And not only are there bad things happening, but the people doing the bad things, it seems like nothing's going wrong for them. If you'll notice, later in the psalm, he says this in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, there in Psalm 10, his ways are always prospering. So it's not just that like, bad things are happening and the wicked people are, are hurting others. It's that they're actually prospering. They're getting away with it and they're thriving. That is a, that is a contemporary issue. And it's been going on for centuries. And so I just want to bring a, a, a couple other passages. I just want to bring them forward for us. Because sometimes I think we need to understand that the Bible is not just some prim and proper book that never deals with the hard things of life. Several times the same thing gets, gets spoken in the Scriptures. It gives us language when dealing with something very bad in our world and it seems like God's not there. That's not the first time anyone's ever struggled with that. Actually, the, the authors of the Scripture own it. They also have struggled at times. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5, and then we'll just drop to verse 12. Check this out. It seems very contemporary as well. David here is the author of this psalm, Psalm 73. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. They're free of care and they're amassing wealth. The bad people are out there doing lots of bad things, and yet they are thriving. Where are you, God? The prophet Habakkuk, it's just this really short book in the Old Testament, this prophet, three chapters, and the book opens, the prophecy opens with this, Habakkuk chapter 1, 2, 3. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. That's how the prophet opens the book. So many in our modern world think they're quite sophisticated if they bring deep questions, deep philosophical, metaphysical questions about the nature of good and evil and, and the injustice of our world. And that proves there's no God. As if they brought forward some real real new argument that no one's ever heard, that when bad things happen, that can't be a good God in control. There's nothing new about that struggle. The Bible has that struggle even within itself. So when the next time someone says there can't be a good God and bad things happen, just know the prophets and the psalmists have been dealing with the same exact thing. That's no argument against God. That just shows that's a human struggle. And the Bible's honest about human struggle. So here, Habakkuk says, God, I'm seeing a lot of violence and a lot of wicked people, and I'm wondering, where are you? That's a question I think we are asking this week. No matter what the news that's going to come forward, and it will be bad, you're probably going to want to ask, where are you, God? And why aren't you doing anything? Now, here's the cool thing. The Bible's got an answer for that. The Bible's got an answer for that. 
Maybe not one we like, but the Bible's got an answer. Psalm 10's got an answer. We'll get to it in the second half. So let's now dig on that second point. The wicked reject God. The wicked reject God. So we know the wicked are out there. They're doing a lot of bad things, and they're getting away with it. They're prospering. It's like, why, God? Where are you? Why do you stand so far off? There's also that piece of the wicked reject God, and there are layers to the rejection. I really want to unpack that. There are layers to the rejection. It's not like just they're going around going, there's no God. Did you know there's no God? There's no God. That's not so simple. There are layers to the rejection. So let's take it just kind of as it flows through the psalm. Psalm 10, we'll just pick up several verses, and I've put in red here the different ways that the psalmist describes the rejection. It it is a reviling of the Lord. The... a, a, a form of rejection is they don't even seek Him. And I love, this is probably one of my favorite parts of the psalm, verse 4, in their thoughts they have no room for God. Their minds are so full of everything else, really themselves, there is no room for God. God doesn't even make it in as a thought. And then that last section, that last part of verse 5, your laws are rejected by Him. They literally just say, I, I reject the Word of God. Like, those are all ways of rejecting God. So just different ways of summarizing that basic reality of rejecting God. And when you reject God, you typically then put another God in its place. And that God typically is you or me. Like, that's usually the way this works is that I become my God and I decide what I will worship. I decide uh, what I want. Actually, my desires and feelings typically become then the center of the universe. And so when my feelings are the most important thing in the world, my desires are ultimate, well, then I'm probably going to boast and brag and promote my desires the way I feel, because it's all about me. No surprise. It's exactly what we see happening in in these that are rejecting God. Check out this next verse where we pick up verse 3. It's the first half of verse 3. This wicked person boasts about the cravings of his heart. You see, when you're the center of the universe and everything in the universe is, is all about you, then whatever you desire and whatever you have an appetite for, well, that's the most important thing in the world. And so you're going to boast about the thing you worship. And so you're probably going to boast in your desires, your cravings. Even if they're bad cravings, you're probably going to call them good and you're probably going to want everyone else to accept it. That's typically the way this works. This is just human nature. And then when you become the most important thing in the world and you actually are boasting, you're wanting everyone else to acknowledge your own desires and your feelings and your identity and who you are, when you become the center of the universe, well, then you begin saying things about God that really demonstrate the extent to which you do think you're God. You start saying things like this. Just a review. These are some of the things wicked people say. Nothing will ever shake me. Why? Because you're the center of the universe. And whatever you say you are, you must be. No one can shake you. No one will ever do me harm. God will never notice. He covers His face and never sees. There's no God to keep me accountable. I do what I want. Live this life. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you will die. That's what we do. And then that last one, He won't call me to account. I'm my own judge. No one will judge me. That's what a wicked person will say because they've become the center of the universe. And when that happens, then you'll take out anyone that gets in your way to do what you want. That's, that's the way this begins to track. Anyone that gets in your way, you've got to take out. Hence, 
A large section of Psalm 10 is about the violence wicked people do. Why would, violent peop- why would wicked people do violence? Because either a person's getting in their way or they can use that person to get whatever they want. And that's what wicked people do. They take out innocent lives so they can keep doing what they want to do. This is the way it, this is the way it, it looks in the psalm and it, the way that the psalmist writes it. Just one example. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. He's always figuring out a way to get past whatever barriers put in front of him and to use people to get whatever they want. Okay, summary. So here's the summary. Here's the big summary over all of that. When you peel back the layers of what it means for a wicked person to reject God, here's a summary. We'll make it just as brief as possible here. When a person... We might as well go with a city or a nation. Rejects God. Now, here I mean, is unanchored from truth. When you just start creating your own reality, is unanchored for truth, it spirals downward into pride, violence, and confusion. What is good is called evil, and what is evil is called good. When you see an unanchoring from truth, when you, when you unmoor from truth, you watch and you see how... How significant pride becomes in that culture. Now, I'm going to just take a pause. And we're going to have an inside moment. Pride becomes very significant. This is July. Last month was June. You follow me? Last month was June. Things like Pride becomes very significant in a culture that becomes unmoored from truth. Is everyone track with me? Did we have? Did we all? Did we all go there together? Okay. Okay. But any culture, any nation, any city, any person, when you anchor yourself from truth, you will see confusion and violence and pride. Every day of the week, you'll see that, and you can go track that. Ever since the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, everything was really good. And then in chapter 3, something happened. Adam and Eve decided they could be God. And what happens? Violence and pride and confusion. And it doesn't take long until Cain kills Abel. That's the spiral all every time for humanity. And here's the thing. The prophets in the Old Testament... They're, 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 like, they're describing this over and over and over again. Now, some of us are reading a Bible plan called the Bible Recap. It's a read the Bible in a year plan. And maybe you're reading a different Bible in a year plan. But for us that are reading that plan, we read Hosea this week. And I couldn't help but bring this passage out. Take a look. This is like, I mean, it's just picture perfect. Not literally perfect, but it gets the point across. Here's what Hosea says, chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, you know what's coming next, even if you did not read the next verse. You know what's coming because you know the general principle of the world. Here's how Hosea describes it. There is only cursing, lying, and murder. Stealing and adultery, they break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Sounds like Genesis 3. Sounds like June. 
you get the point. This is just the human order. You unanchor from God, you spiral down. This is the psalmist. This is the description the psalmist is giving us in verses 1 through 13. Like all of it's packed into verse 1 through 13. Now here's, here's where I'm, I might be going off on the deep end. I've got to read a long passage. There is one passage in particular that I believe describes all of this better than any other passage. It's a long one. So I'm going to invite you, if you are using a Bible to read along, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We will pick up in verse 18 of Romans 1. Now, typically, when you, when you hear or follow along on a long passage of Scripture, you might, you know, you might come in and, in and out. Your concentration might wane. You might get sleepy. Your eyes get heavy. I get it. Like, reading the Bible doesn't always, doesn't always strike us as the most, you know, exciting piece of literature. Now, I think it is. I think it's our problem, not the Word of God's problem. But this one. This passage, it's bold. It's loud. I mean volume. I mean, wait till you hear the content. I think this one will keep you awake. Here we go. Paul writes this. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's a relationship between truth and wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, well, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, that I means useless, their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, well, God gave them over in, in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual morality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and they were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as, they did, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do what ought not to be done. Well, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. i got to read that again. They invent ways of doing evil. Now this next one, I didn't write it, Paul wrote it. They disobey their parents.
That's another inside thing we have together. They have no understanding. They have no understanding. No fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Not only they do it, they want to make sure other people are allowed to do it. Oh man. That could have been written this week. Maybe even June 1st could have been written. June 1st. This is truth. And when you unmoor from truth, you spiral down. So what's the response? Like, What's God going to do with all this? Where is God? Why is evil allowed to prosper? Where is God? That's the second half of Psalm 10. So we've got to go back. Psalm 10. Let's finish off this psalm. Psalm 10. We pick up with verse 14. So if you have, you're reading along in the Bible. Psalm 10, we pick up verse 14. Here's, here's how the psalmist comes to his conclusion. But you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief. You take it in hand. Well, the victims, they commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king Forever and ever, the nations will perish from His hand. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Summary, God's justice wins. The thing we don't understand is why are you letting it happen now? God looks in and says, don't you worry. I will bring judgment. There will be judgment. No one is getting away with evil. When Habakkuk cried out to God, God, where were you? Where are you? God says, even if I told you, you would not understand. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. God was going to send a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation. What sense does that make? And then God said, and don't worry, I'm going to judge them too. And all of it will be for my glory. And the righteous will live by faith. So there's no clear answer on why God doesn't do something today on July 24th to stop evil. But what we know for sure is that God will stop evil. And it is part of his providence. So there is this question of why would a good God let bad things happen, that is short-sighted. Where that question would really matter is when you get to the end of time and you look back and see no justice. None of us are there yet. There will be justice. And we will all look back and see the glory of His justice. And no one will be asking, why did you let that happen for so long? Because we will see so clearly His justice. Even today, God's justice will be seen. It just might be hard right now. So just know this. Judgment is coming. Here's the end scene. This is the layers of God's judgment. The end scene is this. Revelation 21, 6-8. This is the thing that will be most clear. He said to me, this is John, the Apostle John writing, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who partake, uh, uh, who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. No one gets away with evil. There will be wrath and judgment for everyone who disobeys. Everyone who rejects God. 
Now, there is this other judgment. There is this other judgment that we have to at least note before we move into some application. There has already been a judgment that has happened. Now, there is a final judgment coming, and all the wicked will be, will be part of it, and it will be the second death. But there's another judgment that has actually happened long ago, and it was at the cross of Christ. That is where Christ took on the wrath, the judgment for all His people, for all the sin, all the rejection, all the rebellion. He took on all the wrath that was due us. He took on that judgment. Let's not imagine that God just threw some Windex on our sin and just wiped it away. No, it was paid for. It was paid for. There has been judgment on our cosmic rebellion. Our rejection of God. That, that time where we thought we were the center of the universe. That thing we still struggle with. That has been paid for. There has been judgment. Two passages, and then I'm adding a third. It's not on the slide. Two passages, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul wrote this. I just want to make sure we understand that this isn't just like Jason having a great idea coming right out of the Scriptures. God made Him who, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then 1 Peter 3.18, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He suffered what was due you. He took it on. Oh, there was judgment. But now we are able to come to God because we have been cleared by His blood. Then one more. Uh, in our Sunday school class, we were studying Galatians. And just in, just in reading and prepping, just rereading this verse, I thought, oh, i got to share it in the sermon. It's not on a slide. It's Galatians 3.13 where Paul wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. The curse do you, do me, his people, he took on that curse. So judgment has come, but praise God, in his immense love, he took it for us. That's Psalm 10 right there. That's Psalm 10. A, a, a struggle with the evil in our world, a description of that evil and the wicked that have rejected God. But then a declaration at the end that God is king and the nations will never win. His justice reigns. Judgment will come. Psalm 10. So much there. So here, let's make some application. And here, I feel like it's like ready-made for application. Like it's just ready-made to just scoot right into our contemporary setting. So I want to say it this way. And I'm going to pull language from Psalm 10 to step into application. Here it is. We are living in a society where people are so full of pride, they do not seek God. In their thoughts, there's no room for Him. They boast about the cravings of their heart, and they say to themselves, God will never notice. He won't call me to account. Like, that's our world. Psalm 10 describes our world, describes particularly our society where it currently sits. And, and the way this is shaping out for us is that now, even the concept of truth, Truth, something outside of ourselves, something that is, that is just stable, absolute, something that stands over us. Truth now is considered a threat. This has been going on for quite a while, but now where this is beginning to shift is now if you even declare truth, you declare absolute truth, this is now considered a form of violence and abuse. Where if you say something to somebody that doesn't match up with what they believe, well, now you are doing violence. Because you've spoken truth to them. Because truth is now a form of violence. 
Now, how does the world that work out logically? Well, if you are the center of your universe, okay, if you're the center of your universe, and someone tells you you're wrong, well, that that they're trying to cut the idol away from you. They're trying to tell you to stop worshiping the thing you have every right to worship yourself. That is a form of violence when you go to war with someone's idol. And so, yeah, for a lot of people, to speak of truth is violence. I want to give you an example of how this has played out in something a little more popular. So there's a documentary out there. Uh, it's, not, it's not a religious documentary. It's a documentary called What is a Woman? There's a lot going on in this documentary. So let, let me just, I want to just detail one part of this documentary. The documentary maker goes to the University of Tennessee and sits with a gender studies, a sexuality and gender studies professor. Now, it just so happens that I also spent time at the University of Tennessee working on my doctorate, and much of my work was done in gender studies. I did not know this professor. Just looking at him, he probably came, looks younger, probably came after I was gone 10 years ago. But I know this world, and I know it at that university in particular. So it's just so interesting that he sits down with someone uh, from UT. And I want you to hear what this filmmaker I want you to hear this conversation between this filmmaker and this gender studies professor. And I think you'll see the point very clearly. We're going to watch it twice, about 35 seconds. Okay, just a clip. About 35 seconds. We're going to watch it twice because I don't want you to miss it. All right, let's go. I'm not even talking about social context. I'm just just trying to start by getting to the truth, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm really uncomfortable with that language of, like, getting to the truth again. In social why, why, life, is that, why is that uncomfortable? Because that, it sounds actually deeply transphobic to me. Um, and, if truth? You, and, and if you keep probing, we're going to stop the interview. I, if I probe about what the truth is? You keep invoking the word truth, which is condescending and rude. I'm saying how to is, you... How is the word truth condescending and rude? Why don't you tell me what your truth is, and you're walking on 30 seconds more of the nights before I get up. I'm not even talking about social context. I'm just, I'm just trying to start by getting to the truth, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm really uncomfortable with that language of, like, getting to the truth. Again, in social why, why life... Is that, why is that uncomfortable? Because that, it sounds actually deeply transphobic to me. Um, and, if truth? You, and if you keep probing, we're going to stop the interview. I, if I probe about what the truth is? You keep invoking the word truth which is condescending and rude. I'm saying is, to you... How is the word truth condescending and rude? Why don't you tell me what your truth is, and you're walking on 30 seconds more of the nights before I get up. Okay. So I need you to understand. I have as my goal never to cherry-pick something out of the secular world and bring it to you as a straw man just so I can tear it down. Because I feel like that's intellectually lazy. I'm not going to go pick an extreme example, bring it here, and say this is this is represents everything happening, and then tear it down. Because that's really easy to tear down the extreme, and then and then you know, as the choir, we all get excited and say rah rah. I pick this example because this is deeply rooted in our intellectual framework throughout our society. That you have a truth and I have a truth. And now truth is rude and condescending. Even the search for it. That's how we get to a point where you, don't, you can disregard biological reality. 
you can disregard moral laws that are just built into the universe. There is truth, but the moment you step away from it, you will descend into confusion. And this professor is confused. And I don't say that pejoratively. Like, this isn't like that he is just confused. And many people are confused. And I'm telling you, I lived in that world and I was very confused in that time of my life. It was a very dark place. Because I was swimming in these waters and you are unanchored and it's all about you. Or me. But here's the warning for us Christians. If you become unanchored, you become unanchored. And I mean you, me, become unanchored from the Word of God. This is where you're going. This is the confusion you will begin stepping into. Now, no one in here who's going to walk around, I'm sure, going, I reject God, I reject God, I reject God. Come with me, I reject God. Like, who does that? Very few people do that, maybe on Twitter. But like, very few people do that. Walk around saying, I reject God, I reject God. I don't think any of you would do that. But some of you may never open your Bible. And if you never open your Bible, then you're going to pick up truth from somewhere. You'll pick up ideas from another place. And if they are not truth, which they will not be, for they are not rooted in God's Word, your life will spiral. So I want to be real careful. So I want to make a larger point about our society. That's why I show the video. But I want, to be, I want all of us to be very careful. Don't think you're so much better that you never become Him. And let us not forget God may bring Him also to the truth. So we don't judge Him. He's an example right now. Real an illustration. But He's a real person. But you and I are not so far from that that we couldn't get there. You have to stay anchored in God's Word. If you don't anchor there, you'll anchor somewhere, and that's never gone good for anybody. God's Word. God's Word. God's Word. Every day of the week and month and year and the rest of your life, God's Word. That will anchor you in truth. So that's the call this morning. You don't want to be like that? Anchor yourself in truth. Stay in God's Word. I heard a story this week. I want to end with this, and we'll do the next uh, um, tip of the hat, Mike. I think you sent this to me. And I never tell these stories. But this week it's this, and I can remember it. I never can remember it. A pastor went to visit with uh, a, a family at their house. And they're, you know, the, they all ate together. And there was a special spoon that, that the guest, the pastor, was able to use. And when he left, the, no one in the house could find that special spoon. Now, if the story doesn't make sense, I don't care. Just know there's a special spoon. Okay? That's the point. Special spoon. And so about a week goes by and they call the pastor. Maybe it was a month. Let's just make it really long. Let's say a year. And, 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 and calls up and says, Pastor, like, we can't find this spoon that we let you use. We believe you took it. Could you please bring it back? And he said, no, I actually, I put it inside the binding of your Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now, the way the story was written, it had like a more easy, gentle, like punchline, but I feel like that was really abrupt. Yeah, but it was in their Bible. Hey, you get the point. Okay. All right. Next step, here it is. I feel like it was too good to be true. Um, that is not your next step. Okay? Okay? Here it is. Again, each day, read the Bible before the news, sports scores, and social media. Here's the reason I'm bringing this back. 
because this is really hard for me this week. And if it was hard for me, it might be hard for you. Like, I get up, I'm making the coffee, and what I want to do, I want to look at everything but the Bible. So I had to not do anything else until the Bible. And man, it shifted some of my, like, my patterns. So I thought, what better way than let's do it again? So this week, that's my challenge to you. Stay in God's Word. Stay rooted in truth. And that will change the kind of person we are, all by God's grace. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thanks for your grace. And now I just pray that you would help us navigate our society. Would you bring justice to the, to the wicked? But we also pray you would draw every heart that is far from you to Christ. Even this professor, draw his heart to Christ. And so we pray your compassion for him and many others. And we are grateful for what you've shown to us. So now we pray in the name of Christ all these things. Amen.